Hello, Sac State students. The week of Monday, October 19th, the State Hornet held its first ever live event on Twitch, the Hornet Speaker series of Q&As. The following podcast episode is edited audio taken from Russ Butner's Q&A, originally aired live Wednesday, October 21st. We have two more of these events coming up in November, so please stay tuned and enjoy this episode. Hello, Sac State students. My name is Robbie Pierce. I'm your podcast editor. And tonight with my co-host, State Hornet news writer Cameron Dady, I am presenting night two of our Hornet speaker series. Our guest for this evening's event is Mr. Russ Butner, a former State Hornet reporter now doing investigative reporting for the New York Times. Butner's career is long running and filled with exemplary service and investigative journalism, joining the Times in 2006 after spending time on investigation teams at the New York Daily News and New York Newsday. In 2012, Butner, along with colleague Danny Hackham, were nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for their series Abused and Used, which chronicled mistreatment of developmentally disabled people living in New York group homes. Last year in 2019, Butner won a Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting, alongside colleagues David Barstow and Suzanne Craig, for an article about President Trump's personal finances, taxes, and debts. In the following weeks, Butner was gracious enough to be the subject of a State Hornet Q&A about the piece and his career, and now tonight, he joins us for night two of our Hornet Speaker series. Now, without further ado, Cameron, could you kindly start us off? So our first question is, how did you get started in journalism? How did you know that this was the career that you wanted to pursue? I didn't have like a straight line to that. A lot of people, you know, work at the, the student newspaper in high school, which I never did. Um, and like a lot of Sac State students of my generation, I had kind of a imperfect uh, path through college. I was in and out because I was working to support myself at the same time. Um, and I, 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 I kind of knew I liked to do things in writing, but I didn't really know what careers uh, were available to that, even into my early 20s, which maybe is kind of lame on my part. And uh, I was actually like, the first time I ever thought about it, I was over at a friend's house and his brother-in-law, we were talking about public affairs and politics or whatever, and he just said, let's go for a walk. And uh, I didn't know what that was about. And it felt vaguely creepy to me, but we went for a walk. And, and he said, uh, you know, I just think like you have a lot of good thoughts on like public affairs and how things should work and how it should be thought about. And I, I think you should think about being a journalist. And I literally to that moment had never thought about it in my life. And he was a physical therapist, nothing to do with journalism at all. And really that just kind of started me sort of thinking about it more seriously. I took one uh, journalism class and it just instantly, like, I was like, I, can, I know how to do this. Like everything else, it just, it just made sense to me all of a sudden. And like, from that point on, I never had any doubt what I was going to do, I think, which is, uh, you know, kind of a, a lucky thing that you, you find something that feels natural enough uh, to where it just leads to a kind of like an organic path through your life. In 2019, as stated in the introduction, you and two of your colleagues won a Pulitzer Prize for your investigation into President Trump's businesses and taxes. When you're working with such a massive topic, how do you get started? Ideally, you get started by just kind of following one thread to another, which is kind of what happened in, in this case. During the 2016 election cycle, there were a few of us that were assigned to look into Donald Trump's kind of business background. I've been a reporter in New York City for a long time, so I'd done some of that, and I, I got pulled into that. And um, that September, one of my colleagues, Sue Craig, uh, went to her mailbox, and somebody mailed her part of Donald Trump's tax returns for one year, for 1995. Um, and then we very quickly started trying to figure out whether it was authentic um, and, and then what the, what the meaning of it and significance of it was. 
And then that sort of just set us on this kind of now almost four year, four plus year odyssey um, where just one thing literally uh, led to another. Let's see, another Donald Trump tax return had been released in part um, to a guy named David K. Johnson, a former New York Times reporter. And it showed like this huge influx of income in 2005. Uh, so we started trying to figure out what that was. Um, and it got us very interested in the money his father had given him because the year before, although it hadn't gotten much notice here, his father's estate had been sold off by Donald Trump and his siblings. Um, so that just started us kind of pulling threads on those, those things to see where we could get. Um, and, you know, sometimes you um, hit a lot of kind of dry runs, things you try don't work out. And, and you're always trying to gauge what your minimum story is that you have. So it makes sense to keep continuing on. But in that one, it seemed like every kind of rock we turned over led to something significant. When you were doing this investigation, at what point did you realize you had a major story on your hands? And why did you think it was important to share it with the public? <laughs> it's really important in these long-term things to be kind of evaluating yourself. I, I like to think in kind of two-week increments. Like, here, here's where we are. We think we have something more we can get to. Let's take another two weeks. And if you have a couple of those two-week periods where you're not making any progress, it probably means you're getting, you're pretty close to done. We started that in March, early March of 2015. And I think by June, we knew we had something major. We had, um, I had gone back through and tabulated every financial disclosure form that his Donald Trump's sister, when she was a federal judge, had filed. And I was able to track through doing that process. It created this ridiculous spreadsheet. Um, his share, and we knew that it was well into like the tens of millions of dollars, um, and, and I, I was pretty sure it was over $100 million. I had tabulated all the property records. I think there were like 150-some um, property records from the day they sold his father's empire in 2004. We knew his share of that was on one day was about $170 million. At that point, we knew how to, we had a story that was going to vastly rewrite the way he had talked about his background and what he got from his father. So along the same lines of that story, but more recently, you and a couple of other journalists wrote another series of articles on President Trump's tax, tax returns, uh, showing most notably that the president had only paid $750 in federal income taxes in both 2016 and 2017, as well as the fact that he's personally responsible for $421 million in loans, most of that due in the next four years. Uh, can you tell me about the process for writing this story once you had access to the tax returns, if it was similar to the stories um, you had written the years before, and how you make sure to compile the information uh, that made sense, the most sense for the reader? I think a weird thing about journalism is we want to think that, um, you know, you want to have a, a process where you're not reinventing the wheel every time you do that. But a little bit of that is kind of inevitable because each one of these things is a little different in its own beast. And, and most things you delve into, you're, you're going into a world that's not your world, right? So the first thing is you have to like kind of familiarize yourself with terminology and the background and, and tax law is enormously complicated. Words that mean something in plain English do not mean that in tax law. Uh, and, and so you have to constantly be evaluating uh, when you're looking at something and it doesn't seem right or it seems noteworthy to you, whether that's because it really is or because it's just, you don't actually have a good knowledge yet um, of, of, of the topic and the, the moving parts of it. So you have to constantly be evaluating that and talking about that with each other I don't think I've read anything, this is sad, anything, anything, <laughs> uh, 
and morning, noon, night, in the middle of the night, except for tax law and tax law cases for the last three years. And I feel pathetic for that. <laughs> and my wife is sick of looking over at me and I'm reading another tax court decision or some paper by Price Waterhouse or whoever. Um, but it really takes a kind of complete absorption in a world. Um, and you, we've spent a tremendous amount of time with um, tax lawyers and tax accountants and estate lawyers and accountants who are willing to give us their time on the background, not to be quoted, just to help us understand what we're looking at. Um, so that's all part of the process and that kind of constant evaluation. And organization is very important. You have to be making memos of things that you're seeing and they're important and then building upon those memos or later memos so you're not um, kind of re redoing things uh, over and over again. You just don't have the time to be uh, backgrounding or redoing things at all. What was the second part of your question? Um, just how, how you organize it for readers. Yeah, just the we, best way so that everyone understands it. Yeah, I mean, that's a, we, uh, there's not a perfect way for that. We just wrestle with that and have conversations about it just constantly. And the way we handled this story was the exact opposite of the way we handled the 2018 story about Fred Trump's money that he gave to his son. That one we told very much in a, in a kind of narrative sweep because we had something from every era of his life going back for 50 years. And so that was the only way it was really gonna work. And we realized we were trying to figure out a way to break it up to help it be kind of in more digestible parts rather than, as that story was, I think 11 or 12,000 words. Um, but we just couldn't get away where it all hung together and worked and we were gonna have to repeat so much. We decided, let's just put it all in one. For this one, it was, we were kind of writing to a different expectation. You know, people have been talking about Donald Trump's taxes and what they might show for five years now. There's a tremendous wellspring of expectations out there, a lot of which is unreasonable. Um, and so we were writing to that kind of environment. We wanted it to be as easy as possible to untangle. And when we started looking at it, we had kind of discernible parts that we could break up logically, both within the first day main story and then breaking off uh, later pieces of it. Um, so we, we tried to do that, but it, it's, that's kind of the art of journalism. There is no perfect metric for that. Um, and you're just lucky if you get to work with uh, people who have done a lot of these kinds of stories. My editors have been working on these kinds of stories for 30 years. And so you have like a lot of tools to draw from uh, to kind of figure that out. And you probably, no matter what you do, there's still going to be a critical mass of people who are going to think you didn't do it the best way. <laughs> that's just part of it of the gig. Uh, so we have an audience question next. Though the circumstances of the time are different, as a State Hornet alum, what advice would you give to graduating student journalists on the process of landing a job after graduation? Oh my God, are the times different, right? I mean, when I, when I got out of Sac State, like the Sacramento Bee was like, they wouldn't even think about hiring a reporter out of Sac State. They would just flat out tell you you have to, we're too big for that. You have to go some other place to a little town, work for a year or two there, and then go to a slightly bigger town and then let us know. And maybe we'll see if you like might have a shot at the Modesto Bee. And then someday you might get to the Sacramento Bee. It was a long road through small towns. Was, I mean, now, like obviously the employment market at newspapers, which is all I really know about, um, and some websites has kind of shifted a lot. I think. It, but I still gets the same thing. Like 
there are two things that are probably going to get you a job there. One thing is that you can, in an entry-level job, that you can handle a story. Somebody can send you out on a job to cover a story, and you're going to come back with enough information to make it work. You're going to be able to write it up or for audio or video, produce it in a way where without a whole lot of hand-holding, they can, it can be published, um, and that you're not going to be a complete pain to deal with, right? Um, and the way for a lot of people to do that is to get internships. I, I couldn't really do that because of my finances at the time. I just couldn't, you know, go off and work for a summer and then come back and have to work another job. Um, but that, that like to get in front of people and have them see that you're a reasonable person, that you're okay to deal with, that you have a certain professionalism to you, that you can either write or produce whatever the case is on a professional, at least entry level um, basis. That's, that's the way you kind of like uh, get going. I feel like that's not a very detailed answer, but um, I, don't, I don't have a lot better one. <laughs> um, so our other audience question kind of goes along with the abilities you were talking about. What's the biggest skill set to have in journalism right now that can set you apart from other people? Hmm, that's interesting. I don't know if I can speak to all of journalism because there's a whole world out there of, of television and of and of audio that I don't know a lot about. I mean, I would say overall, no matter what the medium is from my experience, being able to do what you were talking about earlier, which is to look at a big mess of facts and find a way to tell that in a compelling way, that's, that's the currency of every single news organization. For me as an investigative reporter, the, the thing that was uh, most important to me and still is has been data analysis. When I left Sac State, there was a, a professor at the University of Missouri who was specializing in data analysis, which was a big thing for investigative reporting. It was just getting started. And so I went there and I was his research professor. And that, um, I, when I came out of Missouri, there were there have been some Pulitzer Prizes that have been awarded for people who did data analysis. And every newspaper in the country kind of wanted somebody to do that, but they didn't really know what it was. And they just figured they were gonna to have to hire somebody who was kind of young and experienced. And so that helped me get a job at, at, at New York Newsday and got me into kind of the, the New York market. And I think that's still, if you can do anything evaluating data, even you know, data from social media, underlying data from websites, all that kind of stuff, there, that's ways to gather information that most news organizations don't have a lot of backbench power on. So I'd say those two things, if you're looking to follow anything like kind of like the path that I've been on. It's, it's some aspect of data analysis and then the ability to tell a story, whether it's a short daily or a big colossal thing. Uh, so another major piece of reporting that you worked on and collaborated on was your Pulitzer Prize nominee mentioned in the introduction, Abused and Used, which was a series that focused on the treatment and abuse of developmentally disabled people that were living in New York group homes. And you've also reported extensively on crime and court cases at points in your career. So how did you handle reporting on such difficult and emotional subjects? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think like as a journalist, like I want to be moved by stuff, right? I'm much more motivated when something um, either is just really gut-wrenching to me, when I can feel the things people are going through um, and I want to understand that and I want to communicate that to other people um, or when something makes me angry because it feels like uh, unjust in some way or 
people getting away with things that, that you know other people wouldn't get away with. That's a real motivating factor. And I think it's a great thing about, it makes it much easier to write a story when you know that there's something there that you that it's, it's visceral um, that you feel and that you know you're not making a leap of faith to get to that spot. Um, that's part of the reward of the job. You really feel like you're kind of living life kind of close to the bone there and figuring out important truths and then telling hopefully like, you know, among the more important stories of your, of your time uh, to your fellow travelers. Like that's, that's the good stuff. Um, and sometimes like, I, I would tell you like, sometimes it goes too far. Like I was, you know, I worked in New York after 9-11 um, and that was, that was a very emotional time. I mean, you call the family, you can only call the families of people who have lost someone they love so many times over the course of a few months without it just starting to like break you down. You know, it's just, it's just, it's hard. I think if you're coming to journalism, you want to feel those things. Um, and so you don't like, uh, you don't shy away from it and you feel lucky to work in something um, where the things you're working on actually feel like something and make you think about things that you wouldn't think about other, otherwise. That's one of the great things about the profession. Following up on that question, when you are reporting on these difficult subjects, how do you find sources and how do you make them comfortable opening up to you and talking about, you know, some of the darkest times in their lives? Finding sources, there's a lot of different ways to do that, and it depends very much on the, on the situation. Um, when you're trying to find sources, the hardest situations on these big investigations are people who were uh, close enough to something that happened that the powerful person that you're looking into doesn't want any to know, anybody to know about, right? Finding those people and then figuring out a way to, to, get, to convince them that they can trust you to tell you like what actually happened. I think the best way to do that is, is just a tremendous amount of research, right? Like you will find, you'll quickly, if you start looking into something, you'll quickly find the names of people who were in the circle to know what was happening. But that's not the day you should call those people that first day. So what we would do is we would find the names of those people. We would look into their backgrounds, figure out if, they, if they're still on good terms with the person that's really the focus of what you're looking into figure out if they've got affiliations of other people you might have already talked to who could do an introduction to you. Intermediaries are great things. And really learn the background of everything you're looking into. So like there are people over the last five years I've just shown up on their doorstep. When I've shown up on their doorstep, it's been after I spent, you know, the better part of a month, two months or parts of three months looking into all those things. So when I show up, I'm, I'm not saying like, hey, you know, this deal happened and it looks really weird. Like, what happened there? Can you tell me what, what, how they break the law? When I get there, I say like, so the day that you had that meeting, like the price had already been negotiated by Bob on the side and Bill had already made the call over here to make sure it wasn't going to get any legal scrutiny. And then there's one thing I can't understand. There's this one little thing I can't understand about it. And, and, and when, you, when you show up at somebody's doorstep and you can show them documents and really present a case that you've done your homework, that it's clear that they're not the only source of what you're, what you're going to ask them about, that they're not providing the only documents that are gonna to go to that. Um, there's safety in that, comfort in that. They take you seriously and they're much more likely to help you bridge that little gap 
so we've talked a lot about your reporting tonight. What do you think is the most important piece of journalism that you've produced? Uh, wow. <laughs> I um I, I don't I that feels like really kind of arrogant. I don't know. I don't know. I mean I I like I there have been things I've been like very pleased about all of them, like un, un, untangling 5,000 business tax returns over the last year was a real arduous process. And and uh, you know, I didn't because of the time constraints of it, trying to get finished by the by September, I didn't have a day off for about six weeks. Um, and I'm sort of proud we were able to pull that together in an authoritative way. The thing I did with Danny Hakem about the development of disabled people, I, I just felt like we shined a light on something that was really important and that uh, a population that was um, not well cared for, but didn't get any kind of, nobody really paid attention to the ways in which they were not well cared for. Um, I did a story, some stories about a guy named Bernie Carrick, who's a former New York City police commissioner um, who had uh, done some bad things and wound up going to a federal prison as a result of those stories. And, and, and until that moment was a kind of hallowed figure from 9-11 in New York. And I thought that was an important kind of correction. Um, and I did some stories of the Daily News in the 1990s about doctors who repeatedly committed malpractice and nothing happened to them. Um, and that led to changes in how malpractice records were uh, reported and, and made public in New York State. I, all of those things, there was something in it that I was like, that was very rewarding and fulfilling. And I felt like we had done a, a good kind of service to our readers and to the public. But I, to try to pick one that uh, I was really the most proud of or thought was the most important to, I don't know that I can like, I don't know that I can do that. <laughs> At this point, we're going to turn it over to some questions we've gotten from the community. Um, we're basically just going in order as they were submitted anonymously. So first question we have for you, in your journalism career, what has been the most difficult decision you've ever had to make? In my journalism career, what has been the most difficult decision I've ever had to make? Um, well, job-wise, I guess it was when I was at New York Newsday in 1995 and the paper closed. And I had just gotten engaged and I had to decide whether I should stay in New York, which my wife wanted to do, or go to another city, which might've been better for my journalism career. But um, uh, probably somebody means like a, 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 a difficult ethical decision or something like that. So I mentioned the Bernie Carrick stories. There was one story about that where he had I, I figured out that he had been given the use of an apartment that was overlooking the smoldering pit of where the World Trade Center used to be because he was the police commissioner and a real estate developer who owned that, that building thought Bernie needs a place to stay because he's just down here all the time working his tail off. Well, I learned that he, while his wife was at home in New Jersey, he had had two different mistresses come to visit him in that uh, hotel in that in that room that you've been given use of because of his job and that um, they had actually one had found a note left by the other one for him under a pillow all of which was incredibly salacious um, and obviously was going to be painful for his family um, but he was at the time up for 
um, the position of Secretary of Homeland Security, one of the biggest jobs in the federal government. Um, and it was part of a larger thing I was working about on about financial crimes he committed also. So I kind of, you know, I struggled with that. Is that like that fair that we're going to do that? Is that right that we're going to do that? Um, and I think we all at the paper at the time kind of kind of wrestled with that. At the end, it felt like it was really reflective of his character, especially at that point in New York City, which was a time when, like, I don't mean to, I don't, I don't think it's an overstatement to see, it was, it was rare to see people who didn't look like they were on the verge of crying like every day. So that he would be there over that smoldering pit where I think 300 firefighters had died, uh, 60 police officers who were under his command had died and be using that apartment for that particular use at that period of time, kind of put it over the top. But it was a, it was a difficult uh, decision and one I've still like kind of second-guessed at times. Okay, so our next community question is, where can we find unbiased news? And I guess I kind of go along with what news sources do you choose to read um, when you know, you're looking for to stay up to date? Yeah, I mean, well, I have like great faith in the New York Times and in the Washington Post and uh, in the Wall Street Journal. I don't read editorial pages or op-ed pages. I don't particularly, I never particularly like the idea that newspapers have those because I think they, uh, they lead people to think that that's the identity of the place and it's almost the exact opposite. They're just like this weird appendage that has nothing to do with the identity of the place. I gotta tell you like, I don't know, I think if you cover politics, it makes you, if you ever had a propensity to think that one party had the market on the best ideas and what was the most moral position, it will beat that out of you in a hot minute. <laughs> and like, I just, I like things that work and I'm not very interested in like, uh, in partisan affairs and political parties and um, or even individual personalities. And I, I feel like that's pretty common among the journalists I know who cover the news um, uh, and, and cover investigations on a regular basis. So those are kind of my big ones. I think metropolitan dailies across the country are still phenomenal uh, organizations. And I don't know like I can speak to every, every one of them, but like I, I still think when I was there anyway, Sacramento Bee was a fabulous newspaper and I hope it hope it still is, although I know McClashy's had hard times. I think there's actually a wellspring of important, unbiased, uh, responsible reporting out there in the world and the places that, that you should cast a kind of wary eye to or uh, become pretty clear um, pretty quick. Our next community question, this is, a, this is a bit of a funner one. What does your ideal self-care day look like? My ability, my ideal self-care day? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, having one would be a great thing. <laughs> I think like, uh, let's see, that's interesting. I would have uh, a, a little time to exercise because that's important to my mental health. I would spend the entire day with my wife and daughter. Um, uh, and we would, uh, I would probably involve watching my daughter either play softball or ride horses or some combination of the two. Um, and uh, we have two dogs, probably spend some time with our dogs and uh, maybe some reading, not of tax law cases uh, in there. Um, you know, uh, snow skiing is uh, my favorite kind of pastime and the thing I miss most about Northern California. So that would be any time, that would be a great one. Um, 
but those are the kind of things that are, uh, and, and sometimes maybe uh, uh, de demonstrating the, the lack of ability I still have as a guitar player after 50 years of trying. Um, any, any part, any mix of those kind of things would, uh, would feel pretty good to me. Okay, this community question kind of goes along with what you were saying about tax laws not being a part of your self-care day. Do you ever get kind of bored with the topics that you're researching? I mean, I can imagine, you know, reading tax laws is kind of strenuous, but do you ever get bored with it? It's a, that's an excellent question. I mean, I think one of the great things about generally about doing investigative reporting is you go really deep into some world and you have hopefully some important story at the end of that. And then it's kind of like you're off onto something else. Um, so hopefully about the time you get bored of it, you're, you're moving on and you might come back to the elements of that, but most often, I mean, this is really the longest I've ever worked on kind of one topic. Uh, usually it's a you know, year to a year and a half is the more typical cycle. And um, it kind of, that cycle sort of suits the way um, I'm best learned things, which is when I have a reason to learn them, I'm not very good when I don't have a sort of immediate reason to learn something. Um, but so you, you know, this, this is just, just kind of perfect for that. And about the time I'm getting bored of it is when I feel like I've answered all the questions that I had and the thing I was looking into, and then you, then you move on. So for the next, there's two questions that were submitted separately, but sort of speak to the same idea. Uh, it seems like journalism is currently under unprecedented attack. How has that affected how you do your job today and affected you personally? And with your coverage often receiving criticism and attacks from the White House, how do you deal with the feedback? The, the, the first part is the harder part because it's, it has changed things. I mean, you, you can just feel how hot things have gotten. You know, when you have the President of the United States calling um, a class of workers enemy of the state, that motivates people to view you in an inhumane way. It's kind of the way wars are conducted, right? The first thing you do is dehumanize the other side. Uh, which justifies whatever you're going to have to do to, to win the war. A few months ago, we had a situation where Tucker Carlson announced on television that the New York Times was going to, I think, reveal his home address as a way to try to put his kids and his children in harm's way, which is absolutely preposterous. We had no, we we're not working on something on Tucker Carlson. We would never do that. We're very concerned about not putting people in those kinds of situations. And, and he, he released, I think, the home address of a photographer of ours. Um, and that photographer began getting like threats um, and hadn't done anything at all. So we had to have a security officer go and sit out that photographer's house. I, I've, I've been doing this for 30 years now. I've never heard of that before. Um, and to be honest here, they were concerned about with that as a backdrop, concerned about this thing. So when we were getting ready to publish this story, I had a security officer sitting in a car, um, a New York City police officer off duty working for a private security company, uh, sitting outside my house 24 hours a day for about two weeks. Um, that was a completely weird and alienating situation. Nothing happened, um, uh, fortunately, but it's just a, it's, it's a weird kind of overlay. And to have a conversation with my teenage daughter, you know, we're gonna have a guy with a gun sitting in front of our house for a couple of weeks. That was a weird thing. Other than that, that aspect of saying like of these broad stroke things of calling people enemy of the state and his abhorrence for the truth, um, uh, those things create these kind of larger cultural problems. His criticism, if you, if you pay attention to the things he actually criticizes, 
there's no there there, right? It's never like, it's never that you actually got something wrong and here's what it is. That's what keeps us all up at night is we're, we're concerned that we're going to misinterpret something or we're going to see something that we, we think means one thing and it actually means another. And it's going to be out of our own ignorance or whatever. We're going to make a mistake and we work so hard to avoid that. And then every once in a while, there's still that one thing that like you, you didn't see um, that gets through, usually not on these kind of big projects, but it, it does happen. But this kind of like broad stroke stuff that like it, it's, I think after we did the story about the amount of money he inherited from his father, he said it was a boring and old story. You know, I don't, I don't care that he thinks it's a boring and old, old story, but it's those kind of general things that he does, this enemy of state people that is uh, disconcerting and causes a, a lot of uh, ancillary damage. When dealing with hyper problems, things like the Trump administration or global warming that have tons of re different related stories and problems, how do you draw the line on what related parts of the story go into one article and what needs to get saved for a different story? Yeah, again, that's like the, the art of it all. And, you know, calling it an art is probably probably elevating it too much, but um, you, you, it, it, you're kind of looking for um, look, you can either break things, the, the ways you can break things up are, are kind of obvious. One is just chronologically. You can say, this is this one era of time that we have a whole bunch of stuff on. And this is this other era of time that we have a bunch of stuff on. And we can put them together, but there's no way to bridge it. It's going to get really, really long. So let's break it up. There are thematic breaks in things. Like for this particular story, the first story was very, all the sort of harder facts. His businesses have lost a lot of money. He's under this federal audit relating to a $70 million refund he got 10 years ago. It's ongoing. Um, his finances seem to be in a mess. He's declared expenses that should be disallowable and maybe illegal. Those are all kind of hard edged things that we could all put together, um, even without a chronology or a narrative arc. But then we had this other thing, which was like, he got $427 million from being on The Apprentice and from all the sort of endorsement deals that came his way as a part of that. That just seems, first of all, just kind of more fun and light and quirky and very different from the other body of stuff. So you just see a kind of natural break there. Um, but as you're going along, it's not like we get to the end of our reporting and go, okay, now let's think about how we're gonna write it and how we're gonna organize it. With every new thing that we come across that we feel is gonna wind up in the final story, we're thinking about how we're going to break those things up and we we change it all the time but we're always kind of having those conversations um, about how we're going to how we're going to handle those kind of issues because you just it's too big to get to the end and then kind of thinking about that for the first time all right our next viewer question says how does one navigate a group project with one investigative story what's the process of having multiple hands working on one story yeah, that's like, there, there is no set way for that. You, you kind of hope that um, you're either your skills are going to be complementary, um, where like one person is really good at this kind of stuff, another person is really good at this kind of stuff, or there's going to be so much of one general category of work uh, that you're all going to be good at it and you can divide it up. But it's, it's, uh, it requires like patience and respect for each other um, and allowing people to, to try something and then maybe it, doesn't work out and not hold it against them. If it doesn't work out, you have to kind of support each other. Um, and sometimes there are people who have big personalities involved and that creates a challenge. 
there's just no like kind of perfect way to do that. I think staying organized is really important. Um, so we keep like, uh, I keep spreadsheets of just organizational stuff, what we're all doing, who we're all calling, what documents we're, we have, what documents we've gone through, which ones we have and what databases we've analyzed, which ones we haven't. Uh, we keep big, we write big memos and put them in a place where everybody can see them. Um, and just like almost constant conversations. That's been one of the hardest part of this year. Usually for this kind of thing, we would be in a room together for, for a year. Do you feel like you were ready for journalism, for the journalism world right out of Sac State? Or do you think attending graduate school um, helped elevate your career a little bit? Uh, that's interesting. I would say like coming out of Sac State, I was ready to work at a newspaper. I was more than qualified to work for a newspaper and everybody I worked with there was as well. The thing that I got in Missouri was more based on the data analysis stuff. And Missouri was the only place I knew of at the time was really offering that as a, as kind of a, a journalism program. Certainly like just the, the quality of education and the practical skill of writing stories at the Hornet and having people read those and being open to ways you can improve made me ready to work at a, at a news organization then or, or a website uh, today, for sure, I would say. In the Trump era news cycle, how can news organizations extend the lifespan and hopefully the impact of important investigative journalism like yours, which is just this rapidly moving media world of social media and everything else? Yeah, I mean, it's really true. Like so much of our perception of what is in focus, I think comes from cable television today. And, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but I really feel like cable television can handle about one and a half stories a day. That's about it in terms of the news organizations, you know, they can handle like Donald Trump and a little bit about a hurricane or something like that's about it. And, and that story has to change every day or the, the station feels stale. Trump says so many crazy things every day that every day overtakes the prior day and it feels like he's getting off the hook on things. But when I realize things have kind of worked their way into the culture, is this is gonna sound trite, but when you hear comedians making jokes about it and not citing a New York Times article, like people are just making jokes about him paying $750 in income taxes now, right? We've, we've had impact with those things. We've worked our way into the dialogue about how people talk about him and think about him as a businessman and as an American. Um, and then, but if there's really like something you're going to actively do, it's just the usual stay on the topic for the right amount of time, right? Like if there are, we're, we're still finding new things in this material that we want to tell. Um, and so we're going to keep doing that. And that continues to focus attention on the issue, but only for as long as it's warranted. And when you're done, you're just done. Um, our next question is, do you have any advice for young journalists looking to get their foot in the door of the New York City media industry? I would find like a website, like, you know, I mean, like the Daily Beast is based, there are a lot of websites that are based in New York City. Politico, I think, has big offices there. Um, uh, the Daily Beast has big offices there. One of the great things for me about being in New York City is a lot of places in most places in the country, I would say, there's kind of one dominant news organization still. But in New York City, you know, I've worked at now, this is the third newspaper I've worked at in New York City. And you can actually get into a place, get some grounding, you make connections, you meet people, uh, you work with people who move on to another job and they remember you, you remember them. 
Um, so there's this sort of like um, LinkedIn network, the people you've worked in in your whole life, worked with your whole life, and, uh, um, and that can help a lot. Here's another question from chat, another, another funner one. Uh, what is your favorite movie about journalism? I thought Spotlight was fabulous. I, I've actually like, I, I, I grew up watching Lou Grant when I was a kid, nobody will even remember that show. It was Ed Asner playing this newspaper editor. I think it was vaguely modeled after the Washington Post in the 1970s. And I, I didn't at the time think about newspapering work, but I thought that was a really cool show for some reason. But I watched like a bunch of movies about newspapers since, and they all seemed off the mark. But Spotlight in terms of like really getting a sense of what the work is like of, of putting together certain categories of investigative articles. They, they really got it right and did it very respectfully um, and showed both like kind of how hard it is, but then the kind of weird drive that you have to do it when you get in the middle of those stories. So that, that, that spotlight is, a, is an easy answer for me. Somebody just asked, what do you think is the worst journalism movie? <laughs> The ones that I've forgotten, I would say. <laughs> um, yeah, wow. Which ones? Uh, I mean, ah, the, uh, there are just ones that I, I, golly, I remember watching ones and thinking, well, that's just horrible. It just really doesn't work that way. Um, I don't know. I mean, there was one about, there's one that I just kind of boycotted based on what I read about it. I think Clint Eastwood did something about um, the bombings, uh, down south at the Olympic Village some years ago where like it was like he had some reporter female reporter having an affair with like a source and and I was just like I'm just not even gonna I'm not even gonna see that I just can't support that kind of thing um and uh so I don't know I'd say the ones I don't I, there is a story about Spotlight I figure out a way I can tell that story shortly after that movie came out there was a particular person we were trying to get to cooperate with who was really important and the person had heard about Spotlight <laughs> and thought, oh my God, I have these investigative reporters who want me to work with them. And this person wanted us to go to Spotlight and all of us sit and watch the movie as part of our celebrating of what we were gonna try you know, to work together on. So like you asked me earlier about how you get sources to talk to you. It's just, you know, it's a human interaction. You have to just be yourself and and the preparation like i said is a huge part of it but you never know what kind of thing is going to like enable you to work together as humans what's the best advice you've ever gotten about journalism in general hmm um uh let's see there was a this isn't really advice but it was one little line um you know i mentioned my friend's brother-in-law who said, I think you should be in journalism when I wasn't thinking of it. That was like a life-changing, simple little suggestion for me. But a, a thing in my journalism career, there's a couple things you'll hear over and over again from really good writers, get out of the way of the story. Don't get in the way of the story. Uh, and that, that can be when you're trying to like overwrite something, you're overthinking it. Um, and there are times when you just have to kind of get out of the way and let it come out. But there was a moment when I was at University of Missouri and they publish a general circulation newspaper of the town. They don't cover the college except as its role in the town. And I had written it and there had been 
two teenagers who had committed suicide at a um, mental, in, at, at a for-profit mental health facility there. Um, and I figured out that they had um, uh, sent those kids home after 28 days, both of them, and both of those kids killed themselves within a week after that. And that there was a reason they had done that was because insurance only covered 28 days of inpatient health care. Uh, and so we wrote a story about that. And, and we brought them in. We, the, the Missouri, Missouri had a policy, I think partly because it was a student newspaper, of letting the subjects of really tough stories read the story ahead of time. So we let the managers of this healthcare facility read it. And we brought them in. And, and, and I was sitting there with this fellow, George Kennedy, who was an experienced newspaper editor, who was at that time editing the student newspaper there. He'd formerly been an editor at the Miami Herald. And, and I was just watching George for clues on how you handle this kind of thing. And he let them go. They screamed, they yelled, they pounded the table. This is an outrage. And they kind of stopped and they were, this went on for like 45 minutes and they were out of breath. And they said to George, well, what are you going to do? And George said, well, I, I think it's going to run Sunday. <laughs> and, and the guy said, well, what about everything we've said to you? And George said, well, I, we didn't expect you were going to like it. <laughs> and that was it. We were done. And you know, they hadn't raised any, any, any merit, any issue of fact that had any merit at all. It was just they didn't like it. Um, and to, to, to help you think about this kind of story in that way, there are things that are issues of fact, and there are things the person is just not going to like. That was uh, life-changing and affirming to me. So don't expect people to like it, and, that, and that's, that's not a bad thing. Next question is, did you always want to be specifically an investigative reporter, or did you ever venture into other lanes? Um, I, I wanted to be an investigative reporter before I even knew that I wanted to be an investigative reporter. You know, I was at the Hornet. I, there was, I did a story, a longer story about a former city council president, if that's the right term, who had embezzled stuff from, um, from university funds. And it was really hard to untangle. And it took some, uh, took a lot of kind of piecing together different things. And I was really enthralled by that process. I'm also not very good at like kind of uh, the temporal truths of daily journalism where you're sort of, you have to kind of write, explain the things you don't know and the things you do know and why it's hard to figure out. All that I just find incredibly frustrating. I find it much more easy, much easier to write something when I have complete confidence with what I know about something and it just focus on the things that I know. Um, so partly I think that might be kind of an insecurity and then partly just that I really like figuring out kind of hard things. But when you work at big newspapers, you'll cover weekend shifts. And I've written like weather stories that just delighted me. I was like, I didn't know I could write like that until I had to write an, a, a story, a 500 word story about an icicle dangling from a stop sign amid a, a, a snowstorm in New York City. Um, or I wrote something one time, it was like 300 words about Mayor Koch being in the hospital in his final days. But I just found this kind of like way into it using Yiddishisms. You know, I'm a kid from Sacramento. Why do I know for Yiddishisms? But I, it, it made me, it was very satisfying to kind of kind of do that. There are a couple of times when like editors said, you've been working on this investigative thing for like, you know, a year now, it's done. I know you like baseball. Why don't you go to Boston and write, write, write feature stories for a week about the Yankees home opener at, at Fenway Stadium. 
So like, and that was incredibly delightful and rewarding for me. So I never really wanted any of those things as a full-time job, but those little diversions are, um, I valued all of them a lot and they do expand your skills and make you kind of explore ways you can write and tell stories that you wouldn't encounter just working on these really like uh, difficult long-term things. All right, looks like we're down to our final question. Are there any journalists that inspire you and why are they inspirational to you? <laughs> there are lots of journalists that inspire me. I mean, right now I would say over the last couple of years, um, uh, Julie Brown of the Miami Herald, I mean, just look at what she did. Like, like I talked earlier about how you kind of evaluate the merits of looking into something, that, that, it's, that it's something that's gonna be noteworthy and that you can prove. So she's a reporter who looked at Jeffrey Epstein's conviction and that he got off on it. He, he got basically off scot-free from this thing and um, decided, you know what? I think there's reopening a closed and fully adjudicated criminal case to me seems unimaginable. <laughs> and, and to think that you can have a way into that, um, incredibly brave because you know, you. You're telling your editors these things, and, and if you spend six months or a year looking into something and you've got nothing, that they're not going to listen to you anymore. <laughs> Every one of these things is its own kind of kind of risk. And she did that, and she got that case reopened. And that documentary you see on Netflix is because of her and the fact that he was reincarcerated and unfortunately hung himself in prison is because of her and the fact that those the the, the women that were abused as young children by him. That's because of her, that they got their day when they, it was real justice was served, not this sham of a criminal case that got whitewashed away. That's because of her and her bravery and her abilities. So like in the last few years, I'd say Julie Brown. Yeah, that, uh, that pretty much concludes the event. So again, Russ, thank you so much for coming and making yourself available for us. Yeah, I think, I think this was real nice. I think we all had a fun time. Good, I did too. Thanks very much. Go Hornets. Thank you so much.